0: Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our host, Steve Butler. On today's program, our series entitled, The Second Coming versus the Rapture, as he opens God's Word to study the difference between the Rapture and the Second Coming. It's time to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In our last program, I talked about how we had covered so many scriptures over the last number of programs in this particular series on the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ to the earth with the church. And if you've been following along in the handout that is provided by this radio station at uh, whcbradio.org and look for Exploring Bible Prophecy you see this handout, and you'll see that we've uh, covered three full sections of that. And within those three full sections, you've seen a lot of Scripture. And if you've uh, been with us pretty much from the beginning of the series and have been following along in the handout, you've probably um, been able to uh, keep track of all those different Scriptures. But I'm suspecting that a lot of uh, listeners have uh, either not been with us the whole time or have... Um, not been following along with the handout so what i'd like to do and i I hope you do have a copy of the handout because what i'm going to do today is go back over the three sections that we've covered so far about the uh, the second coming of christ with his or to the earth to take his bride back to heaven before the tribulation and how he's coming back again at the second coming with his church to um judge the earth at the end of the tribulation. And again, a lot of scriptures that we've shared so far in the various programs in the series to do that. So I'm going to try and touch on each one of those uh, scriptures uh, very briefly with, if you will, a thumbnail review, and hopefully it'll be of uh, benefit and be a blessing to you and provide you a foundation from which we can move on into um, sections four, five, and six, and so forth. So let's go ahead and start that review, and then uh, we'll see if we have enough time to answer a question or two from our uh, listening audience. Okay, again, we're talking about the series on the differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, and you have the handout from whcbradio.org as a guide. Um, In the rapture, Jesus comes from heaven for his church. And he also calls the church his bride, and that is made up of church-age believers. The Acts passages in section 1 under the rapture uh, list there, t- listed there teach us that the church age began at Pentecost, and that was marked by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the apostles. The John passages teach that all church believers from Pentecost forward are defined by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians teaches that the church has been betrothed to Jesus as a chaste virgin. Ephesians teaches that the marriage of a husband and a wife is modeled on the relationship that Jesus, as the bridegroom, has with his church, his bride, and soon-to-be wife. Thessalonians teaches that the Holy Spirit, the restrainer of evil, will be removed before the tribulation begins. John teaches that the Holy Spirit indwells the church forever so that we leave with the Holy Spirit before the tribulation begins. Now looking at the first point under the second coming column on the right, the Revelation passages teach that the bride or the church comes back to the earth with her husband, Jesus. Isaiah teaches that Israel is the wife of God and not the wife of Jesus. Israel is not part of the church. Colossians teaches that when Jesus is revealed, the church will be with him in his glory. Now let's look at um, point number two. In our handout, point number two in our handout, under the rapture column, we build on on point one by adding that Jesus takes his bride, his church, to heaven. Acts depicts Jesus as ascending into heaven after his resurrection. Thessalonians, John, and 1 Corinthians are the better-known rapture passages describing our going-to-heaven with Jesus. Under the second column, at point number two, the church comes back from heaven with Jesus. Matthew and Zechariah both teach that Jesus comes back to the earth at the end of the tribulation. And as side notes to the Matthew passage that we discussed, because Matthew uses the term elect. Some scholars believe that he is referring to the church. The first Isaiah passage refers to the righteous remnant of Jews as elect or holy ones. So you can see that there are two groups of elect, the church and Israel. So it's very important to understand the context of the passage to see which one is being referred to. The second Isaiah passage in this section, describes the great trumpet that is blown at the second coming of Christ to gather the scattered Jews, and we found that in Matthew 24. Because the Matthew passage imagery is clearly Jewish and after the tribulation, it stands to reason that the word elect mentioned there are righteous Jews living on the earth and not the church. And the great trumpet in Matthew 24 is the great trumpet of Isaiah 27 that calls the Jews together at the end of the tribulation. Let's look now at uh, point number three under the rapture column. The Thessalonians, Timothy, and Revelation passages all teach that the church, the bride of Christ, will not witness nor experience the divine wrath of God that is executed upon the earth during the tribulation period of seven years. Even though God's divine wrath against Israel is not until the second half, according to the scriptures, and that's a period of time called the time of Jacob's trouble, the divine wrath of the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, is all through the first half of the tribulation. In fact, according to the book of Revelation, half of the world's population living on the earth at the time the first half of the tribulation will die. Half the world's population living on the earth at that time will die. The Isaiah 57 passage is what is called a type or shadow. The passage has a current or near-term application at the time of Isaiah in this case, as well as an application for a yet distant future event. In this case, it's a type and shadow of what the rapture is about, the taking away of the righteous and the unrighteous barely even noticing that the righteous are gone. The righteous will not see the evil of divine wrath that will be executed upon the earth during that terrible time called the tribulation. The Daniel passage teaches that the tribulation, also referred to as Daniel's 70th week, is when God will deal with the rebellious nation of Israel. This Daniel prophecy provides details about the 70 weeks when God deals with the nation of Israel and with the city of Jerusalem. And it's very important here to understand that point in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, It is to Daniel's people, which is Israel, and it's to his, the holy city, Jerusalem. It's not referring to anyone else. So No other group of people, we can say, no other group of people is mentioned as being the focus of that 70 weeks or 490 year period of time. During the first seven weeks, we find in Daniel chapter 9, or seven, seven weeks or 49 years, during that time, Nehemiah and others returned from the Babylonian captivity, which um, really kicked off in 586 B.C. Actually, the whole time frame of uh, 605 to 586 is they were being taken captive into Babylon over that period of time, but it... Um, was measured as 70 years from uh, 586 to rebuild the city and the temple during that 49 years mentioned in Daniel 9. Then there's another 62 weeks or 434 years that follow the first seven weeks, and that uh, 62 weeks ends with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, again prophesied in Daniel 9. Shortly after, The holy city of Jerusalem is completely destroyed by an army, and that army is from the ruling government, which at the time of Christ's crucifixion was Rome. And then that passage in Daniel ends with a depiction of a man that comes from the people that sent the Roman army to Jerusalem, uh, culminating in 70 AD, and that man will be the Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel, and that's Daniel nine twenty seven, for one week or seven years. So that 70th week, remember there were 69 weeks before that, that ended with the crucifixion of Christ and the destruction of the temple, and now we've had this long period of time called the church age. While we're waiting for the initiation of this 70th week, because remember, the church has nothing to do with the 70th week. It's all about Israel. And that 70th week, we find from Daniel 9.27, begins with the revealing uh, of the Antichrist and his making a covenant with Israel that allows Israel to do a number of things. But uh, the uh, main thing is to build the third temple In Jerusalem. The Antichrist breaks the covenant, causing the sacrifices in the temple to cease, and that's done halfway or three and a half years into this, um, what would have been a seven-year covenant, and it's the seven years of tribulation. The Isaiah 28 passage describes that covenant as one made with death and Sheol, so another name for a, a place like hell. It's not the ultimate final place, but it's kind of, if you will, a holding place until these people are judged at the uh, great white throne judgment. So it's described as a covenant made with death and Sheol, and to me that's a clear indication that the man confirming the covenant with Israel is indeed the Antichrist. The Isaiah passage even states that the covenant will be broken and that the protection of Israel, promised by the Antichrist, will be withdrawn, and then, at that midpoint, then the scourge of the tribulation will overtake Israel as well. And that happens in the second half, or the second three and a half years. That is the time that's described as the great tribulation, because it's a time uh, that horrible wrath will be executed against Israel. And again, the purpose of that is to make hard-headed Israel come to their knees literally and figuratively and accept Jesus as their Messiah, which they will do. The 2 Thessalonians passage states that in order for the Antichrist to be revealed so that he can confirm the treaty with Israel, the one who restrains him must be taken out of the way. Some theologians believe that the restrainer is the Roman government, But that government disappeared 1,500 years ago, so obviously not applicable. Others believe that the restrainer is Satan himself. But why would Satan be restraining the Antichrist? Because the Antichrist is there to do the deeds of Satan on behalf of Satan. So a house divided cannot stand against itself. No, the, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit who was sent by God to convict the world of sin and unrighteousness, and that's, that's in John 16. He is not restraining by himself, however, because the Holy Spirit resides within the church. We saw that in, um, at Pentecost, and we saw it confirmed in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. And a major point of significance is the fact that the Holy Spirit, once residing within a member of the church, never leaves that person forever. Consequently, wherever the Holy Spirit goes, the church goes as well. So the church, as the restrainer of Second Thessalonians, is removed from the earth with the Holy Spirit who lives and acts in and through the church when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way at the rapture, before the Antichrist is revealed, the Antichrist is then free to confirm his covenant with Israel, his covenant with death and Sheol, which signals the beginning of the seven year tribulation on earth. Let's now look at point number three under the Second Coming column. The New Testament book of Jude, that passage teaches us that Jesus will return with his holy ones to judge the earth for its unrighteousness. The Deuteronomy 33 passage uses just about the same language as Jude. The term flashing lightning in the Deuteronomy passage is also translated as fiery law or judgment being executed. The Isaiah 63 passage describes the same judgment mentioned in Deuteronomy as being started at the same location as Deuteronomy, which is a place um, just south of the nation of Israel in the uh, ancient land of Edom, which is uh, modern-day Jordan, basically. So we see that uh, those Old Testament passages are confirming what we find in the Jude passage, which is a New Testament. Then the Old Testament book of Joel Uh, describes the judgment that the Lord will execute on the nations of the earth at his second coming. So it's adding some more uh, breadth and content to our um, study of the judgments. The nations will be gathered in the valley of Jehoshaphat and will be judged for how they treated the Jews. Remember, they scattered them throughout the world over the centuries and how they divided the land of Israel and took it for themselves The Matthew 25 passage in the New Testament was written about 850 years after the book of Joel, but it also teaches that when King Jesus returns to the earth at his second coming and he sits on his glorious throne, using the language out of Matthew 25, he will gather the nations and will judge them based on how they treated the Jews. They're referred to as these brothers of mine. So this is a, a confirmation in Matthew of a prophecy in Joel from, like I said, 800 and what was it, 850 years or so difference. But again, two different authors, two different times, but the key is it's the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. The Zechariah passage in that um second part of number three, describes how Jesus will return to the earth, stand on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, gather the nations to Jerusalem in what is generally called the Battle of Armageddon, and fights against them on behalf of Israel and Jerusalem. Not on behalf of the church, not on behalf of any Gentile nation, he fights for them on behalf of Israel and Jerusalem. The Acts 17 passage states that God has appointed a specific day in the future when He will judge the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's another confirmation in the book of Acts, a New Testament book, of what we read about in the Old Testament, about God judging the world on behalf of Israel. The Roman passage describes the wrath and indignation that will be brought by Jesus at His second coming. And that wrath is against all those who have a stubborn and unrepentant heart, who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. And then concluding point number three and the review that we've undertaken here, you have the second Thessalonians uh, chapter one passage where Paul comforts the Thessalonians They have been falsely led to believe that the rapture has happened and that they have been left behind and are experiencing the seven-year tribulation. Paul tells them that according to God, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven at his second coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So that's a quick review, if you will, of the first three sections. And we're going to look at a question now from a listener, and then we'll pick the series up again next time. And let's see, we have a question from Greg. We have a question from Greg in Indian Springs. And Greg's question is When Jesus comes back at his second coming, will the world be made perfect? <laughs> Good question. Greg, the Bible teaches that the world will be made perfect when death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So let's go to the book of Revelation. Let's go to the book of Revelation and go to chapter 20. So go to the very end of your Bible. In the very end of your Bible, and let's go to chapter 20. And it says in chapter 20, verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the reason I bring this passage up Greg, is that let's remember that the penalty of sin today, the penalty of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. That's Romans 6. Let's go back to the left in our Bible, Acts, Romans, the book of Romans, and go to Romans chapter 6 just to confirm that. Um, Romans 6, verse 23. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as long as there is sin in the world, there's going to be death in the world. And when death is removed, sin is removed, and that's when you have perfection. But if there's no more death, then there can't be any more sin. So no sin equals perfection and eternal life. So let's look at Revelation 21. So again, back to the last book in your Bible. First, second, third, John, Jude, then to Revelation. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 reads, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So Greg, the the perfection comes when eternity comes. Eternity begins at the end of the thousand-year reign of King Jesus on the earth. So when King Jesus comes at the second coming, things will be greatly improved, almost perfect, but there will still be death. So if there's death, it's not perfect. So let's, um, let's look at Isaiah 65. Let's go back again to, we've been to Isaiah so many times, you should be able to go to it fairly quickly. Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and so forth, Ecclesiastes. Then you get to Isaiah. We want to go to the end of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah, actually, verse uh, chapter 65 of the 66 chapters. And let's look at uh, 65, verse 20. Verse 20 reads, No longer will there be in it, and this is in Jerusalem in the second, uh, in the millennial kingdom after the tribulation. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So you see that there's going to be long life like there was Well, at least right after the flood, and maybe there'll be long life like there was before the flood when they lived for hundreds of years. And then in verse 20, it says, they will, or excuse me, in verse 22, they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. So he's saying that there's going to be a, lo- a long life lived by the righteous people during the millennial kingdom that uh, starts right at the end of the tribulation and those um, judgments that we've been reading about. But there will still be death, so therefore we cannot say that it is a perfect circumstance at that point in time. But, you know, there's, it talks about the wolf will, uh, will graze with the lamb And the lion will eat straw like the ox. Um, That is telling us that as it was before the flood, you had people that were vegetarians. It was supposed to be the righteous people were vegetarians. We know that sin brought death, and therefore we saw people actually eating meat, the unrighteous. But it was intended for man to be vegetarians and then after the flood they were given god gave them to uh, the ability to go ahead and consume meat and that is where we are today in the church age but the bible tells us that in the millennial kingdom when christ is sitting on his throne in jerusalem and life is approaching perfection but not there that uh, we will back be uh, returned back to a period of when we will be vegetarians Because it tells us clearly there in Isaiah that animals like a wolf uh, will graze. It says, will graze with the lamb. Now, we know that a wolf is a meat eater and that a lamb eats grains and grasses. But a wolf will graze with the lamb and it says that a lion will eat straw like the ox. So that's a very interesting distinction between what we experience today and what we'll see during the millennial kingdom. So if a wolf and a lion are going to graze and eat straw like uh, the animals that we normally think do, then we know that we are approaching perfection because we don't have that instinctive desire to kill, if you will, uh, that is uh, part and parcel of a sinful world. So while there is sin, it's going to be reduced because we've learned where is Satan during the millennial kingdom? Jesus has thrown him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So the temptation to sin will be there, but it will not be heightened uh, as it is today. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on today's Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.